BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, Latifah Simon is running for the congressional seat now held by Oakland's Barbara Lee. She's a strong advocate for criminal justice reform and has close ties to Kamala Harris. Simon grew up in public housing in San Francisco and has been an advocate for young people in the criminal justice system, especially women. And this helped shape policies aimed at giving young women who get into trouble with the law a second chance. We'll talk with her about all of that and how she might use that experience if she gets to Washington. She's but, also a BART board director. And a BART board director and a CSU <laughs> trustee. Well, you know, she's lots, got a, lot got a of, long uh, resume. Yeah, she's exactly. juggling a lot of things. But uh, speaking of which, Washington, that is, uh, this week, uh, Diane Feinstein once again in the news. She's been out since being diagnosed with shingles. She had said she hoped to get back to the Senate by the end of March. It's now mid-April. She's still not back. And there have been some calls this week from Rokana in particular, the congressman from the South Bay, for her to resign. because what the, And the big issue is she's right, on the right. Judiciary Committee, and there's a backlog of judges. And, you know, tick-tock, you know, they need to get these things done, the Democrats do, because, you know, we're heading into an election year soon enough. And there's a concern that those judges may not get confirmed if they don't have the votes. They're, you know, it's a 10 to 10 vote on that on that Judiciary Committee. And so without her vote, they can't get things to the floor. Yeah, I mean, and sticking with the judge issue for a second, I think that this is really like where the rubber meets the road for Democrats. It's not just this theoretical question of whether you have a member, although with the Senate split as closely as it is, a member on the floor matters as well. Um, But I do think that after what happened, you know, under Trump in particularly around federal judgeships, not just the Supreme Court. There's a real urgency among Democrats that's made this bigger. Um, We've also heard a lot of pushback this week. You know, people like Nancy Pelosi and others saying men have been allowed to be ill in Congress to sort of overstay their time. And uh, Dianne Feinstein is being held to a higher standard. standard. And to that, I, I agree with that. I also don't think that that's necessarily means that, you know, one person should grind the the people's work to a halt. And I think the compromise this week for her was to, to ask to be to replaced. However, that, that you know, yeah. that is easier said than done, because uh, in order, it's not just as simple as Chuck Schumer, you know, picking, you know, whoever, Alex Padilla or somebody else to take her place on the Judiciary Committee. They have to get consent, unanimous consent in the Senate, uh, you know, and there are a few right. more than a few Republicans who might decide they're going to not uh, go along not with that and, and just keep those judges bottled up. So, you know, it is an issue. And, you know, even if she were to resign, you know, as some like Rokana are asking, I think you're going to have sort of the same issue uh, in in the Judiciary Committee. So it's a real dilemma. They, you know, need to get her back there if they want to get those judges confirmed, I think, or at least out to the floor. 
Yeah. And I mean, we should say this all comes after her announcement not too long ago that she will not seek another term and the kind of domino effect of that, which includes the person we're about to talk to who's running for Barbara Lee's congressional seat because Barbara Lee is running for Dianne Feinstein's uh, Senate seat. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just to make it a little more interesting, even yet, uh, you know, the governor said a few couple of years ago that if that seat opened up, he would appoint a black woman. A lot of people at that time thought Barbara Lee would be a leading candidate. But now, you know, we're in the throes of an election. You know, there's three prominent Democrats running, uh, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, as well as uh, Barbara Lee. So it's it's very complicated uh, set of dynamics right now. And, uh, you know, but there is an urgency in, on the part of Democrats to uh, to get that to get those judges out of that committee. Yeah. And I mean, this brings up so many bigger issues about, you know, ageism and sexism and I think questions about the way we, like, we, we sort of talk about these things. But ultimately, there's this other wrinkle, which is that a lot of progressives in California have seen Dianne Feinstein for a long time as out of step with their cause and, you know, the representation. And so I think that there's there's extra tension here that may not exist um, with other members. Quickly, before we go to break, uh, you've been reporting on this, Scott. What has Dianne Feinstein and her camp been saying? Like, what is the response we're hearing from the senator? Well, they're not talking on the record so much. Uh, they insist that uh, she is recovering and that, you know, there were all these rumors flying around about how sick she was. You know, she is, according to folks I've talked to, getting better and uh, they're hoping to get her back to D.C. But, you know, at the age of 89, when you've been as sick as she was in the hospital, uh, you know, it's she's frail and uh, thin. You know, she's she's just not very robust. And so it's going to be tricky to, to get her up and running, you know, in, in the rigors of, you know, as we've all, anybody who's been in the Capitol knows there's a lot of walking involved yeah. too, you know. No, and it's a tough job. And with all the travel, I mean, California is one of the fast, the, the furthest place other than Hawaii yeah. and Alaska, right? Yeah, and to that, get she used to, to go on her DC husband's from. private plane, but that plane doesn't exist anymore. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to be joined by Latifa Simon. She's running for the Oakland congressional seat now held by Barbara Lee. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're delighted to have back with us today a woman who has spent a lot of her life working to break the cycle of poverty, drugs, and crime that too many young people get swept up in. Latifa Simon is currently a director on the BART board, where she represents parts of 
Oakland and Berkeley and other parts of the East Bay, but she's also a longtime advocate for civil rights, economic justice, and criminal justice reform. And by the way, she was also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Award. Latifa Simon, welcome back to Political Breakdown. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Good Thanks to see you. Thanks for being here. Well, you know, on this show, we always like to talk about how, where people came from. Yeah. And you grew up in the Fillmore Western Edition in public housing in San Francisco. Um, tell us about your life, you know, there, growing up, your family. What was it like? I grew up, actually, in the in the early parts of my life in um, a beautiful uh, part of the Western Edition on Fulton Street, the beautiful Victorians. Later on in my life, we did move to low-income housing um, as a young person. Um, but I was raised in a very deep tradition of of activism, of organizing. My dad's family came here in the very early 40s. Bunny Simon, my grandfather, opened up the first eight jazz nightclubs in San Francisco awesome. that mm. were black-owned, of course. San Francisco was a segregated place. In the 1940s, he came from Louisiana hoping to escape racial terror, and he did find it here. But like many folks who came from the South, um, especially pre-World War II and post-World War II and during, created community and family and business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so proud of that. My grandmother, she was the president of the Lions Club in Ocean Ingleside, oh, wow. going to her house, actually, Diane Feinstein, then mayor, would sometimes be in her living room. My mother's family is from Arkansas. Um, then... And when her mother died, she moved to Rockford on her 18th birthday, post-high school graduation, came out here, lived with my aunt, my parents met, uh, and I was raised in the Fillmore. And definitely a deep child of the Bay Area. I got into some trouble as a young person, was on probation, <laughs> in well, and out I, of high school. Yeah, yeah, too yeah, far. We'll um, get to that. I'm curious, though, I mean... I think your mom mostly raised you, but it sounds yeah. like you were still um, around your grandparents uh-huh. on your dad's side quite uh-huh. a bit. Uh-huh. What? Tell us about your mom. She's still around helping. Right? My mom's awesome. Um, she worked at the VA hospital for over 27 years, and she's retired now. One of the reasons why I deeply have always looked at organized labor as a, a deep function, a, a of our communities. My mother can retire with some dignity. Um, and she lives in the sunset. She had, loves her plants. Um, and she raised two girls on her own. And what I have learned from her um, and what I've learned from so many of the women who have raised me is that um, sometimes two or three jobs is what you need to do. No matter what happens, we have to sort of keep our communities and families together. And that's really how I've lived my professional life mm-hmm. beyond Beyond whatever difficulties, I've always known I got to keep a payroll going. I got to be good to the folks who look up to me. I got to treat my kids with dignity and respect so that they can do the same. We've heard uh, London Breed talk about growing up in the Western Edition mm-hmm. in public housing and, you know, s- witnessing a lot of, That's you right. know, violence and death and all kinds of things. Did you experience that when you were growing up? I mean, you said you moved into public housing maybe, I don't know how old you were, but mm-hmm. not you, you weren't born there. Yeah, I was in high school. Listen, our communities. Um, What's so beautiful about San Francisco is, you know, you could be living in a in a kind of a beat down Victorian and three blocks down. There's a public housing unit. We were three all, blocks across the street. Across the I street. mean, you know. we were we're the Western Edition is, again, one of the uh, to me, the most dynamic places and spaces while it's deeply changed. Absolutely. Growing up in the 80s, you ask any person who was raised in city, did they feel the impact of the war on drugs? Mm-hmm. Any any urban neighborhood, any dense space and place. Um, why I am uh, I've been so passionate about how systems fail and don't work for folks. Um, I knew and loved so many young people who made life or death choices and are still in 
prisons and jails for those choices. And I know from the work that I've done that for a fraction of the cost, we could get to the root causes of those issues and send them on the right path. Absolutely, I buried dozens of friends, um, buried dozens of friends. And when when I was running uh, the Young Women's Freedom Center for so many years, um, I had to deal with the the reality um, that young people are often preyed upon. There's nothing that I think we all want more than to live in safe communities where we feel like we can put our little kids on a big wheel. There's a misnomer that only folks in the suburbs want that or only moderates and folks on the right want that. If anything, folks like myself and folks like London and folks like our children who have seen the, the depths of poverty and the depths of violence want safe communities. And that's what I've been working on my whole life. So you mentioned Young Women's Freedom Center. You ended up there um, very young. Mm -hmm. And as uh, executive director, you also... Well, I don't know. Did you drop out of high school? Uh, many times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read you were on debate team for all four years, but you dropped out. In and out. Oh, yeah. Um, I know you got arrested for shoplifting. Tell us about the, those teen years and like how you ended up pregnant, but mm-hmm. also in this incredible job that really changed the trajectory of your life. I went to George Washington High School, and any any teacher who's still on this earth will tell you Um that I definitely struggled. I was in and out and in and out and in and out. And actually, Stanford Chandler, who for many folks who were born and raised in San Francisco, he was the debate coach for George Washington High School. He was one of the folks who kept bringing me back. Um, You know, I went to state championships pretty much every year. Um, He and there were a number of few other folks who knew how smart I was. But I definitely struggled. Um, I struggled hard, not just academically, but really socially. I got into a lot of trouble. Like normal kids, I ended up in the juvenile justice system, and it was very difficult to get out. But I found an opportunity to work at a small organization that later on I ended up taking over with a baby on my hip. I had Amina right at sort of the cusp of my 19th birthday. Um, And I was 18 and pregnant, and um, I, I can't believe that was 26 years ago. She's graduating from law school in three weeks. Wow, I can't believe it. Um, it's amazing. But, you know, becoming a young executive director of an organization who had a, a deep vision and mission to ensure that young women, both that are members who were on the streets and in jails and are young employees— had everything that they needed, not just to do better and get out of system, but to change the material conditions of our community for our children, for our elders. Um, I, I, I was self-taught and also had a lot of mentorship over the years of how to raise money, how to be a really good manager. But you manager. had a lot in common with the women you were helping. Of course. Too. Of course. I yeah. know every end of this city. Uh, <laughs> I have been, I have, um, I've seen a lot. Yeah. I've seen a lot. And I also know that the folks who are often so afraid of and the folks who actually many people who cross social contracts and hurt other folks, I've seen them be able to come back um, and actually be huge um, benefits to community. And again, I, I think that because we know what to do, many of us who've been on the ground, um, it is frustrating to see bad system actors making decisions that don't actually get to the root cause and change these conditions. Why I'm running for Congress. Yeah. We mentioned at the top that you have long history with Kamala Harris. How did you first come across her? Was she DA or running for DA? How did you get connected? She wasn't running. She was the assistant city attorney under Louise Rennie. Louise Mm -hmm. Rennie had brought her here from Alameda County to run a task force, to launch a task force on what was happening in the underground street economy and the sex trafficking uh, rings with an S that the police department and, in fact, the the district attorney couldn't figure out. There were literally hundreds of children, there still are, 
in Alameda County, I see it every day, on our streets and our DA and our police department, we're arresting and charging these girls and gender nonconforming youth um, with with pretty deep charges. And what Kamala had done in the East Bay was work with victims of sex trafficking instead of prosecuting them as a DA to find and direct who was hurting them and who was raping them and to figure out how to get those young people care. So Louise Rennie brought her here to do the same thing, not just to to do it, but to start a task force to expose how, in fact, a progressive San Francisco was locking up children who had been raped and abused on the streets. My organization had been working with those amazing and resilient young people developing their power and giving them a space and a place, one, to be employed, two, to sort of heal from that work. She started a task force, invited me and some of those young women to be a part of it. Um, She started coming to our center every other week doing Know Your Rights workshops in her chucks. Um, And, you know, it was about a year later where she said she wanted to run for the district attorney position. And I was actually deeply saddened because... um, I spent my job fighting DAs, trying to get girls free every single day. Girls who were arrested, charged for nonviolent offenses, who were being sent down to the California Youth Authority. And I said, you know, Kamala, I don't want to have, we're going to come protest you. Like, you're the person who, if you do this job, you're part of the problem. Um, She won. And she called me one day and she said, I really think it's important for you to come and work for me. And again, I said, you're the man. And you know what she said? She's like, no, I'm a woman with four-inch heels. Come and work for me. Either you are going to stand outside with a bullhorn or you're going to sit with me at my desk and we're going to develop a program to get young people working and out of our system. And I did. And I did. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. With us is BART Board Director and Congressional Candidate Latifah Simon. Okay, so before we move on from this, I know that not only did she make you come work for the man, the prosecutor's <laughs> office, Kamala Harris also demanded that you went to college and yeah. I believe maybe even checked your uh, receipts, essentially, every you know, semester. I, I got I to tell you, um, Vice President Harris is the toughest and, and best boss I'll ever have. She's extremely demanding that we, one, created a program that actually changed people's real lives to get young people off corners. Um, but absolutely, she wanted me to be the best that I could be. I went to Mills College um, in the morning and then evening after work. Um, the last time I saw her, I was so happy to say, you know, Vice President, I just graduated. I just graduated from USF during COVID. I got my MPA, um, very much focused on public sector economics. It's a wonderful program. Um, But of course, she wanted to know my GPA, too. Uh, (laughs) Still. (laughs) This was literally at her residence. She had a a gathering for young electeds. And um, I'm very proud of, of how much I learned from her, how tough she was on me and other young people in her office. You were a MacArthur Genius Award winner at the age of 26, I think. Uh, did, did you feel like a genius? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I like the young women who run the Young Women's Freedom Center now. Um, they work 24 hours a day. Um, if someone is in danger or in trouble, I've never driven a car, you know, but I'd be on the bus at night. There was no Uber, no Lyft, finding a young woman who was in danger. I was at court every single day ensuring that young people had representation that cared about them or the judge knew that no matter what hell or high water, um, that we were invested in that young woman not selling poison on streets, but actually going to school. I have young women now who, um, you know, are physicians. We knew, we and we still know, that if we invest deeply, um, that we get results. But we also know, and this is really important, that folks like me who have seen the depths, again, of violence and poverty, it is so clear when a woman is raped, 
When someone dies at the hands of someone who crosses that social contract, when people hurt people, accountability is really important. And the way that we have been doing it, done work. Um, so I um, didn't feel like a genius, still don't. I'm always in a learning <laughs> mode. Um, I am absolutely um, the product of the people that um, have raised me and have poured into me. Those are young people and those are mentors and those are electeds from all spectrums, all sides of sort of political views. Mm-hmm. So um, again, being a child of the Bay Area, you have that benefit. I want to ask you before we talk a little bit more about your elected career life, mm-hmm. um, somebody who loved you deeply was your husband, Kevin Weston. And he was diagnosed shortly after you had your second daughter, Mm -hmm. Layla, uh, with leukemia. Um, He died after a really tough battle. I think you guys got married in the hospital. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Kevin, but also what you learned from that? Because you came out of that after your MacArthur Genius Award, after all the success, having to file for bankruptcy because our system is so broken. Well, one of the things that I really deeply appreciated about you know, being the wife of Kevin was learning how to love unconditionally, like deeply unconditionally. Kevin was an amazing journalist, um, a thought leader in so many ways. Um, And when he was diagnosed with a terminal disease, I couldn't digest it initially. I I just, I couldn't, like I was going to lose, finally in my life, there was some, some calm for the two years plus that we had him um, during this r- horrific cancer, the clinical toll that it took on his body, I watched it every day. We were in the hospital for months and months and months, being right by his side, seeing, again, like all he really wanted to do was just hang out with his daughter. And, you know, the lines in his body, the radiation, the chemotherapy, even with insurance, um, you know, Kaiser was wonderful to us. And yet he had a terminal disease. We did everything that we could to keep him alive. Um, we went to the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. We He had a stem cell transplant. Every single document that was put in front of me, no matter what the cost was, if it would give Kevin another day, um, I didn't care. And I would do it all over again, even with health insurance. We ended up in tremendous amount of debt, leaving our children behind um, to get treatment. I didn't believe that he was ready to die, and neither did he. So we did everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even with insurance, um, I mean, I, I still have bankruptcy on my record for another year. And it's okay, because my daughter actually has video where she can hear her father's voice. But I learned And I met literally hundreds of people on that journey trying to live another day, met their wives, met their husbands and their children and their babies, traveling to hospital to hospital to hospital, living on those wards. And the day that Kevin died on Father's Day 2014, um, I had lost all of my breath at that point. I'd lost my breath when they came to get his body from my bed. And I knew that I was going to have to live a life with our values in ways that he would want us to live together. And that's doing everything that, that you're doing, that we're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I owe him that. I want to ask you about your job on the BART board, mm-hmm. uh, which you got elected to a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and you're legally blind. Mm-hmm. And I think, I don't know how long that's been the case, but how does that figure into the work you do on the BART board? Because you rely on public transit. Yeah, everything that I've done in, in my life has been very connected to my personal experience. Um, one of the biggest joys that I've had about being on the BART board is to be able to fight consistently for mothers, for low-income people, for folks who are transit-dependent like myself. When I was the president of the board in 2020, 
in 2020, I was so happy in January when I was elected president by March. You know, we had no budget because there was nobody catching our trains. Our ridership went down under 5%. And one of the first things that I felt was, what if we don't exist anymore? Um, and I began to get on the phone with our general manager and other leaders around the country to say, something is going to happen in the Trump administration. Something is going to have to happen. And we need to make sure that the transit community is centered in that. So if, in Care Package 1, 2, and 3, um, we were centered in that because of our advocacy, because of the clarity that for many people around the country, in fact, transit and mobility is the basis of how they not only feed their families, how they get health care, how their kids get to school. I have never driven a car. I've been visually impaired my whole life. And every single decision that I make in the world has everything to do with my disability. From where I live, I have to take public transit. For where my kids go to school, can I figure it out? Um, one of the things that I realized when I first got on the BART board was I might have the opportunity to work on fair justice that children, for instance, over the age of 11 were charged full fare because there was never a transit-dependent single mom on the BART board. No one cared. So, so many things that I, we've been able to do together as as a board um, through the lens that I've, um, I've been so honored to bring along with my colleagues. I believe have worked better for writers, including the work I've done with our chief. You know, I think I've talked to our chief, our chief of police more than anybody on our BART board for the last four years that he's been chief, trying to work extremely hard to increase the number of folks, safety staff, both sworn and unsworn, on our service uh, to make sure that there's folks on trains who are staff, both armed and unarmed. That's because I ride the system every single day. I don't always tweet about it, but I'm doing the work. Yeah. Well, you bring up Twitter, and I do want to ask you. I know you are one of a number of East Bay black women representatives and Oakland City Council yourself yes. who have been targets of really vitriolic harassment, not just on Twitter. Yes. In real life, I believe you had to move yes. because of it. Yeah. How do you deal with that? And, and I wonder if it gives you any pause before you seek an office like Congress when everything we've seen nationally. Um, it's extremely scary. Um, I would... You know, during the 2020 um, year that I was president, you know, I was getting death threats consistently on my phone from unknown callers. And I always pick up unknown, unknown callers because I've had my same, same cell phone for 30 years. I don't know who it is. Someone incarcerated, someone in trouble. Um, horrific, horrific threats. And I began to report them to our chief. I, it was only less than a year ago during public comment that someone called um, and left a violent racial threat during a BART board meeting. And no one stopped the meeting. I had to stop the meeting. Did you just hear what was said to me? I mean, my life is threatened almost every week. Mm -hmm. um, and folks sometimes say, well, that's what comes with the job. I pray about it all the time. And I know this is the work that I'm supposed to do. Um, it doesn't make it feel any better. But I, I know that I'm not alone in that. Um, I am scared. I get scared all the time. But, you know, my hope and my joy is a lot deeper than my fear. You know, if you get elected to Congress, uh, you're going to be going back there. Maybe you'll be in the majority. Maybe you'll be in the minority. You know, don't know. Um, but given all the experiences you've been describing and, the, and also the tone of the world and the partisanship back there, how do you envision yourself dealing with that climate? I don't know if you guys know me, but um, <laughs> we do. I mean, I have learned to, especially during my six years on the BART board, it's about getting it done. And I have learned and matured a lot even in those six years. I spent a lot of time 
arguing and yelling the first couple of years. And I realized this actually doesn't work for the people that I'm representing because I disagree with someone. I actually need to move something. One of the things that I know about my experience is that Americans actually share a very similar experience. People are dying in every family. People have health insurance. Some folks don't. Folks are waiting on buses in the middle in the middle of the day. And in most cities around the country, transit has been slashed. Infrastructure is critical. Child care is critical. Life insurance is critical. If we think about treatment on demand from San Francisco you know, to Portland, Oregon, folks don't have an opportunity to get well when they're unfortunately cursed with the disease of addiction. These issues, reproductive health, can you imagine? You know, Layla was a twin. Layla was a twin and her, her wonderful twin is now in heaven um, I can't imagine if I didn't have the resources when that child died in, in my womb, um, the, the the medical attention to save all three of our lives. Unfortunately, it was a horrible, horrible experience in my life. Um, but I had doctors who treated me first. In many of our states, women are not going to have that basic fundamental right to be treated. And it's about sharing stories it's not always about sort of throwing paint and fighting. And so in the, to me, in the shoes of Barbara Lee, which I will never be able to fill, <laughs> in the 30 years that people have poured into me, being a child of San Francisco, being half raised in Oakland, being a young mom, being a widow, being someone who's worked two or three jobs, being someone who's led organizations, who's raised, who knows how to raise money, be a good employer. I know what it's like to have to fire someone when we can't make payroll. I know what that feels like for my mom not to have enough money some months to pay rent. And more importantly, I know what to do about it now. Hmm. Well, you've got uh, a race ahead of you. There are some other people running, we should say, but uh, you've really in certain, you've gotten a lot of endorsements. There's a lot of momentum behind you, so we look forward to watching that race unfold. But Latifa Simon, thank you so much for coming in Thanks, and Latifa. sharing your life story with us. I'm excited. All right. <laughs> that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Catherine Monahan, and our pro- uh, producer is Guy Marzarati. And if you're in the Bay Area, join me and Marisa on May 9th for a live political breakdown with former San Francisco mayor and assembly speaker, Willie Brown. You can get those tickets at kqed.org slash events. And also check out the live open house we're having on April 29th. Yeah, Dragged Into Politics we'll is the theme. All right. <laughs> I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.